Hello, you are listening to Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. And it's a very warm welcome to a special edition of the Cambridge Film Show. We have an extra special Christmas treat for you today as we count down our top 12 films of the year voted for by our lovely team of reviewers. My name is Yossi Osman and helping me on this cinematic countdown is the effervescent Emma Marchant. Hello, happy almost Christmas. Happy almost Christmas indeed. We've got basically everyone here today so I'm not going to run through all their names but we will introduce you quickly as we go through our films. Uh, Before we start our countdown just a quick shout out to some of the films that just missed out on featuring in our list including Paul Thomas Anderson's Academy Award nominee Licorice Pizza, Nicolas Cage as Nicolas Cage comedy drama The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. But now get the bubbles ready as we get started with our top 12. And at number 12 was Red Rocket, which came back all the way, all the way back in March. This came out. It was Sean Baker's follow up to Tangerine and the Florida Project. So I'm going to start with Ash because you are a big fan of this. What drew you to put this in your top 12? The problematic reason that the lead character was so alluring to me. And I, I know it's supposed to be problematically alluring. So Simon Rex in the role of the guy who is grooming a a teenager, nearly adult, to be a part of the sex industry with him. But he's just so magnetic and you feel so terrible for him. He's obviously such a broken person. He got a lot of his self-worth from his previous career and is so desperate to try and get back into it. And because he's not quite right, he doesn't see that anything he's doing is wrong. Okay. It's it's so problematic. He's not doing anything on purpose. He's so bad, but he's so broken and sad and sweet and he's a child in there. Luke, I think Ash there described like really this was a career, this sort of was a real comeback performance of Simon Rex and almost a career defining performance, some might say, as we've said, the guy who's, who's, who's left, he's fallen out of the adult film industry, but he comes back to his hometown in Texas and, and, and tries to introduce Strawberry back into this world. What else? I mean, did you, were you a big fan of Tangerine and the Florida Project? I was, I was fans of both of these, and I feel like Red Rocket picks, off, picks up from those films and evolves into a slightly different style of its charmingly provocative, I would describe it as divisive film, where it's testing your ability to like the main character and it does it in such a cheeky way because, uh, as Ash says, the main character is not at all likeable, but yet he's so charming in that he doesn't... He's not malicious, he's just awful. Um, and it's such a difficult role to pull off for Simon Rex and he's the, you know, the glue that holds the whole thing together. I seem to remember being really impressed by the visuals in this because obviously it's a fairly, it, 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 you know, it, it's a very working class, um, depressed area of Texas that he's gone back to. But I just, I hadn't seen Tangerine Project, sorry, Tangerine, Florida Project or Tangerine. <laughs> but I thought the visuals in this were amazing. Henry, thoughts on those? Yeah, so I haven't seen Tangerine, but I have seen the Florida Project and it has a similar thing of kind of making these very ordinary, very like working class areas into these like beautiful and like inherently cinematic kind of scapes for play because that's what this film does feel like it's kind of dealing with a lot of like tricky and quite thorny stuff but then it's also having a lot of fun with itself and it allows you to go along for that ride and by the end you may not be having quite as much fun but I think the real genius in kind of Sean Baker's construction of the film 
and in casting Simon Rex as the despicably lovable Mikey, you get to kind of go on the journey and not quite work out the point of the journey where you slipped from liking Mikey to really not liking Mikey. Yeah, it's a clever move. I'm going to come to my delightful co-host, Yossi, because you also put this in your top 12. What led you to... Well, yeah, what led this film to stay in your mind? Because like we said, it came out a long time ago, um, but it's obviously stuck with all of us in here. What was it for you? I think for me, it's... And I have seen both Tangerine and The Florida Project and, and Sean Baker of the, of the films. I've seen, he's three for three right now in taking these very different slices of American life um, and making them so human... They all cover completely different topics and they're, they're challenging films to watch, but he does it in a very humane way. And every time I've seen a film by him, I've come out being really, really impressed. And this one, and yes, it is, as everyone has said, because it's quite problematic and you basically are looking at a predator, but somehow he's very charismatic and you still feel for the characters in this film. The fact that Sean Baker can do that is very exciting and I just, I can't wait to see what he does next. Okay, well, that was our number 12 film. It's Red Rocket. It will be available, I think. It's definitely available on Prime Video, but you might be able to find it streaming in other places as well. It is a Certificate 15, and it comes highly recommended from all of us. At number 11, it's Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All, which we recently talked about on the show. I believe it was on our... our Two shows ago, two shows ago. So Call Me By Your Name director Luca Guadagnino unites Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell in tasty romantic horror, Bones and All. You never had anyone take an interest in you? A double, double, a double take? <laughs> just always thought. You just thought some people are creepy. It's better if we all steer clear one another. Simon, I know that you were absolutely enamoured with this film. You were very positive about it when we covered it a couple of weeks ago. Tell us why. Um, I'm still am absolutely enamoured about it, um, thinking about you know how great it was when I watched it. Taylor Russell is absolutely amazing as Marin, um, you know, on a journey to discover herself when she discovers she's not quite like everybody else and then falls in love uh, is uh, Timothy Chalamet, who is, again, an absolutely mesmerising screen presence. It's not a film you expected. It's a lot more gory than a lot of people expect, and especially for a teenage love story between Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell, you know, and Luca Guadagnino. Um, Everything about it is wonderful. It really did get to the heart of, you know, trying to get along and meet other people when you're outsiders. The cinematography is fa fantastic. The soundtrack by Trent Reznor and Asakura Ross is beautiful. Mark Rylance is incredibly creepy and continues to have a fantastic year. Just, I can't really fault this film. Everything about it was beautiful. Mark, without giving too much away, Simon's touched on it a little bit there and I called this a romantic horror. I'm not sure if that's quite the right term to use here, but... There are times watching this film where you are led to feel a little bit uncomfortable and yet somehow, in my opinion, Guadagnino manages to make this still such a sumptuous delight of a film. Tell us a little bit more about why you 
rated it nine out of ten, I believe. Uh, yes, you know it, it was it was just outside my top ten of the year, and a, a massive fan of Call Me by Your Name and and some of Luca Guadagnino's other works. And I just think he brings real talent as a director. You know, you get invested in that re- emotional relationship between the two of them, but also uh, the, the the wonderful moments of the the horror. There are a few moments of gore scattered throughout the film, but actually it's some of the more conceptual horror. In particular, there's a scene with with Chloe Savini's character, which actually really creeped me out, uh, and some other moments where Guadagnino knows the exact moment when to cut away and then also when to cut back again. Complemented by that fantastic score that Simon's mentioned from, from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, one of the best of the year, it just works beautifully. And, you know, I think it's a brave decision to take a young adult novel and make an 18 film out of it, but I would absolutely applaud it on this basis. Brave decision indeed. Henry, I believe, looking at my spreadsheet, that this is in your top three films yes. of the year. Um We've talked a little bit about Guadagnino as a director, but do you want to expand a little bit on the cast here and what they bring to this film? Yeah, I mean, Timothy Chalamet, I think, is a kind of... He's one of those actors who can get caught up in some of the tabloid stuff, and when you're kind of focusing on that, it's very easy to forget that he is an incredible screen talent. Every single time he appears on screen, he brings this energy that is somehow completely different with all, to all his characters. This is not Elio from Coin By Your Name. This is not uh, his character from Little Women. This is a brand new being, like, fizzling on screen. And he gets to bounce off Taylor Russell, who, again, as we've all said, is just sensational as Marin, the, like, beating, throbbing heart and soul of the film. And the great thing about this film is that because Luca Guadagnino is kind of at the point of the where he is, where he's kind of beloved in the industry... He can just pull in actors for a scene or two. There is a scene with Michael Stubach and the director, David Gordon Green, where they get to do the name drop of the film. And it is incredible. Neither of those actors appear for the rest of the film. But that one, like, two-minute scene has left such an impression on me that I still keep thinking about it, more than some of the characters who do appear for more of the film. And I'm I'm not the Mark Rylance fan that Simon is, but I loved his Sully. He's so creepy and for a lot of the film you can't quite put your finger on why, even though I think that may seem a little strange considering what we know about his kind of taste from the start. Um, But he just has this energy that manages to kind of permeate and bleed into the film even when he's not on screen. You're just thinking, "Is is that him? Is he around the corner? Where is he? And it's that kind of dread that really allows that beautifully kind of dark tint to the romance. Yeah, I mean, I was quite scared of Mark Rylance <laughs> in this film. Um, but we, we've got to stop it there, sadly, because we, we need to move on. But thank you very much. That was our number 11 film, Bones and All. Right, on to number 10. And this was a film that perhaps wasn't voted for by many of our, of, of our members of our team here, but those who voted for it were so passionate about it, it's made it into its number 10 spot. And it is The Souvenir Part 2, Joanna Hogg's follow-up to The Souvenir from 2019. Starring now, I'm gonna. I'm, I didn't see this, but I'm gonna say I'm saying I'm gonna say starring Anna Swinton Byrne as Julie picking up the pieces of her broken relationship from the souvenir. Mark, I'm gonna come to you because I think this was your film of the year. Tell us why we should all be watching this. It was. It's the absolute perfect complement to the first souvenir film. Uh, both films uh, are really a semi-autobiographical version of Joanna Hogg's 
life choices and the things which which brought her to the point where she is a mixture of things that have happened in her personal life as well as her progress in becoming a, a director and a filmmaker i think this is the better of the two parts i love the souvenir but this just takes everything to another level incredible storytelling uh, and really giving you a, a feeling and insight into how we develop as humans uh, and as well as why somebody would want to be involved in the film industry and there's just moments of of absolute beauty in this film not least when we actually see the student film that Joanna Hogg's sort of avatar played by uh, Honor Swinton Byrne has been working on and it's almost like this history of British cinema uh, that she steps into it's uh, just incredible um, and I absolutely adored it well that's that, that's pretty good that's, that's pretty good to me Luke do you think that the souvenir part two speaks more to cine lovers if you like or do you think it can speak to 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 someone who just would stumble across it that's exactly what I loved about this film is that you you can throw a rock and find a film about filmmaking but I've never seen a film that captures sort of the the puzzle box of mixing real life inspiration and how we use our real life and turn our grief or suffering into art and the way that it interplays Joanna Hogg's autobiographical life and Julie's life and then the student film that she makes that combines the two is a really understated and unique piece of filmmaking. As far as I can see, Henry, um, Honor Swinton Byrne has not been in very much other than the souvenirs part one and two. Is this her? Is is, is hers the performance that anchors this film, or is there more? Other, you know, is there, is there anyone else you'd like to mention? Uh, no, I mean it kind of. If she wasn't really a kind of top tier performer, it would fall apart. But thankfully, she really is, and she she completely brings it. And you kind of you do get this really great sense of evolution between the first film and the second and kind of seeing Julie start to blossom as a character. And I think it's quite imperceptible if you're just remembering the first film until you go back and you watch it and you go, oh, actually, these are quite different characters. And there's nuances that uh, Swinton Byrne has managed to bring to the character that you really only get on kind of second viewings or letting it sit with you over time. Yeah, once again, I think the kind of supporting cast around her it really enables a sense of ease in the audience of like, oh, okay, we're in safe hands. Um, Tilda Swinton, who's worked with Joanna Hogg many times, is here as Julie's mum and is fantastic as a kind of divering, posh English mum. Ariane Labed, who's, you know, popped up in many kind of odd Greek films over the years. Um, if any Yorgos Lanthimos fans recognise her, she's great in her few scenes. And there's even a little bit of Rich Dioadi in there doing a kind of still comic, but like relatively serious performance that again, allows you to kind of, as, as Luke was saying, just bring in all the kind of victory lap elements of, like, British cinema and going, this is worth celebrating so much. So, like, a love letter to British cinema. I'm going to ask one last question, because people can seek this out. Again, it's available to stream, I think, via movie or on Prime. Would you need to see The Souvenir first before you see The Souvenir Part 2? Should you watch it in a double bill? Well, Joanna Hogg said that, she argued that part two would have been better without seeing the first one, but I don't... I, You know, far be it for me to disagree with the director <laughs> herself, but I think it does work watching them in order. Perfect. Uh, OK, I'm, well, that was the souvenir part two. Like I said, the people who talked about it in the studio absolutely loved it. So, yeah, seek that out. And that was our number ten. 
Okay, we are into our top ten, and at number nine, we have got Gina Prince Bythewood's film The Woman King, the stirring tale of the Agogie, an all-female unit of warriors who protected the kingdom of Dahomey in the 1800s from enemies and the threat of European colonisation. I'm personally really pleased to see this in um, the top 12. It's one of my top ten films of the year. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, Stuart, you, you were a fan of this too, because this is a whole Hollywood film. It's dealing with a lot of themes, you know. We're talking, and, and it's got some really great representation here. But as a as a Hollywood blockbuster, how does this fare for you? So, as, as with a lot of films, um, being sort of a, a year a year and so or so into being a part of the Cambridge Film Show, I've seen a lot more films than I typically would have. Uh, but this film was amazing, and I'm really glad I saw it. Uh, as far as Hollywood flair goes I wouldn't say it was your typical Hollywood blockbuster by any stretch but it it certainly has earned its spot in in our list this year it's an amazing film with a really strong female lead it tackles some themes that from an angle we haven't necessarily seen before we've seen a lot of films um, dealing with issues uh, of of colonialism and and slavery but perhaps less so more from the perspective of the uh, sort of indigenous peoples and, and their reactions to it and I thought that was really refreshing to see in this film and as it had some great uh, action and choreography in there as well it had some great visuals from sort of african culture um perhaps more realistic as well because i think perhaps some of the more most recent things you might think of on the big screen would have been from uh, from black panther panther from the marvel films but this is more rooted in reality but yeah i just really really enjoyed it and it was a it was a really enjoyable experience thank you and and mark it's really for me, it's really great to see this kind of portrayal of African history on screen. This is a, a, a real-life unit of warriors called the Agogie, powerful women. Let's talk a little bit about the talent, the women behind and in front of the camera here and what they bring to this film. Uh, I think the women in front of the camera, I mean, if Viola Davis is not in the awards discussion this year, then then the world is quite frankly wrong. And we know it's wrong. We know the, 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 the Oscars and the BAFTAs sadly do get things wrong all the time. But it's an incredible performance. I did not have Viola Davis as uh, an action movie star on my bingo card for this year, but I'm very glad that it's it's become a thing that's happened. But across the board, Cecil uh, Bader, Lashana Lynch, uh, Sheila Atim, John Boyega, just everyone is brilliant at the top of their game in the cast. But it's also... Uh, an incredibly well-directed action movie as well, uh, and so, so so credit to to Gina and Dana, the the team who have uh, you know written and and directed this film because it stands toe to toe with any recent action movie in terms of the quality of what's on screen, drawing into the story, uh, you know, and that final sequence, the, the final battle, is as good as anything that's been on screen this year. Thank you. I, I think that that's a great way to end that one. So that is our number nine film, The Woman King. Swooping in at number eight is Matt Reeves sort of origin story if you like or latest version of Bruce Wayne and Batman the Batman our accounting friends at Wayne Enterprises are coming for breakfast here why because I couldn't get you to go there I haven't got time for this it's getting serious Bruce if this continues it won't be long before you've nothing I don't care about that any of that you don't care about your family's legacy what I'm doing is my family's legacy 
Lorcan, I'm going to come to you first. So you put this in your top. Well, obviously, you put it in your top 12. We wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be talking about it. But we were only talking about how Batman Returns is one of your most favourite Christmas movies. Yes. How did the Batman stand up to all the many iterations we've had of Batman before? Um, now, I, I, I really like Matt Reeves. He's an interesting one. I've never He's never made anything that I've like been bowled over by, but he's very good at taking very goofy concepts and weirdly grounding them, but grounding them in a way that is still kind of fun and a way that like Chris Nolan would, I think, grounded stuff way too much to the point where it just kind of sucked all the fun out. This is, it's three hours. It's a lot of fun. I'm still not completely sold on Robert Pattinson, but it's just such an engaging, well-paced, and just kind of hands-on directing with lots of different inspirations from Seven and all the previous Batmans that have come before. Um, it's it's a genuinely refreshing new iteration that's just lots of fun, I would say. And I hope as many people saw it in the cinema as possible because the sound design is just incredible. Alfie, welcome to the mic for the first time. Um, what do you, what, you, you obviously put this in your top 12. You are a little younger than most of the voices in this world, so you wouldn't have to have grown up with, like we all did, the Tim Burton and the Christopher Nolan versions. And I was going to ask you about Robert Pattinson. Lorcan's given his, imperson- his, his impression of that. How did you feel Robert Pattinson imbued the character of Bruce Wayne Batman? Well, I think he's the best Batman on the screen that I've seen. I feel like in Christopher Nolan, like I just didn't really connect with that version of Batman. Like, you know, with the Christopher Nolan films, the villains are always the best part but in this in with Rob Pattinson I think Rob Pattinson is surprisingly the best part in this film his performance as Batman because like when he's Bruce Wayne I, you don't really see much of Bruce Wayne in this film which is my biggest problem with like Rob Pattinson but when he's Batman he he's like really really Batman because I you know I've seen all of the uh, Tim Burton Batman films and they're enjoyable but I feel like they're very too goofy to the point where it's like Okay, this isn't. This doesn't really feel like Batman, like you know, that I'm used to. But I feel like this is perfect. So this brought some muscle back into it, Simon. I was really impressed by the set design in this as well. Um, and also, it has the most phenomenal supporting cast, including Colin Farrell under layers of makeup you can barely recognise him. Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman and Paul Dano. What? Yeah, what stood out for you? It, it, it's in your top twelve. You did say it's been a while since you saw it, but you know. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those films you're like, do we really need another Batman film? So you're like, why? Why did they make it? Why watching it? And you go in and you're like, yes, I did need that. They've they brought Bruce Wayne back, uh, well, Batman back to being a detective, which is one thing. He is the world's greatest detective. There's not enough detecting in all of the films. And here he is doing his, the actual job of being a detective. The set design, as I said, was amazing. And I was about to mention Colin Fowle, unrecognisable as um, Oswald Copperpot. Everything about it, you, you know, you go in, it's stunning, it's dark, it's like watching Seven. You know, you don't expect a nice comic book film to be compared to Seven all the time, but here we are. It, it is dark, it's gritty, it's absolutely fantastic, and it just absolutely nailed the character. Stuart, you are famously in. You come in the studio to talk about Marvel and DC as two as, as, our, as our comic book fan. Where did this sit for you? You put it in. I mean, has it got? Has it, was it in this? Was it above some of the Marvel adaptations this year in your top twelve of the year? I mean, it, it certainly was. I mean, I I, I really really enjoyed the Batman. Um, I think um, it's been noted that it was three hours long, and uh, one of the common themes that's come up with across all the films, not just comic book films this year, is that. Did they need to be that long? And I think this is one of those films where actually the running time was justified, particularly because of the pacing, because it is a detective story. It's one of the rare occasions we actually get to see Batman portrayed as the world's greatest detective on the big screen. 
and I think that that really works. It's obviously I'm sat here wearing my Captain America Christmas jumper, um, and so I'm naturally disappointed. None of the Marvel Fair have seemed to have made it in this year, but compared to the competition they're up against, it's perfectly understandable. Um, but that said compared to some of the other DC movies that we've seen this year, things like Black Adam, this is just blows it out of the water. Head and shoulders above, yeah, this wonderful kind of film noir detective meets meets comic book. Well, that is The Batman, and everybody in here really liked that. It's available to stream on Now TV, or you can buy it at various places. It's Certificate 15, and it is our number eight. Cambridge 105. This is Cambridge 105 Radio and you are listening to the Cambridge Film Show. We are nearly halfway through our team's top 12 films of the year and bubbling into number seven is Netflix drama Boiling Point, which is set on a very busy night in one of London's top restaurants. Stephen Graham's chef, Andy Jones, balances increasingly precarious situations as diners fill the restaurant and tensions brew. Ashley, I came across this film by chance. I was just flicking through Netflix and found it and I thought, oh, I really like Stephen Graham. I'll give this a go. Then I had probably the most tense 90 minutes that I've had watching a film this year. It's all shot in a single take. Tell us how you found your experience watching this and why it's your in your top 10. Yeah, I can't believe you watched it. It was a very non yozzy thing. It's very <laughs> stressful. It reminds me a lot of Uncut Gems, which I also had to take a break during. I paused. I watched it in two halves, as I did with this one. Because it's just too much. Um, I also chose to watch it because of Stephen Graham. I also really love Finette Robinson, who is the, his um, sous chef, the lady that runs the restaurant with him. You forget that it's all in one take, and that's what one-take films should be like. That's yeah. when they're done properly. Um, but it really adds to the terror threat levels of stress in this. And... The ending was just absolutely perfect because that's exactly how I felt when I finished it. I don't know if anyone here has worked in a restaurant before, but this is a very immersive experience. And the stressful levels of working in a very, very busy restaurant is portrayed, as Ash said, this is a very tense watch. Mark, you also put this into your top 10. Tell us a little bit more about why. I, I think there's a risk when you have a film like this with this uh, continuous one-shot gimmick that it could be just a gimmick. But actually, it serves the story so well. And it's just this constant ratchet of tension that gets tauter and tauter. And as you move around the restaurant, there are a number of different tables and there are things going on. And all of these little dominoes just being set up. And then as the film reaches the climax, they all just start toppling uh, in this absolute cavalcade of chaos. And it is just down to the performances, but also down to, to using this particular uh, one-shot gimmick so well uh, that it is one of the tensest films of the year. Um, it has been announced recently there's going to be a TV series that follows up on the events of this, uh, which, while it won't be shot in one shot, will still have lots of long takes. Uh, and I can't wait to see it, frankly, because uh, you know this is also such a strong story that I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next with the characters. 
Emma, I'm going to come to you next. We've talked a lot about how tense this is and, you know, stress levels. And, and I, I, want, I don't want to scare our viewers here. I, let, let's talk a little bit about what's the, what the selling points are. Like Mark said, the story here, obviously, you have this ex-partner played by Jason Fleming. Again, a really impressive performance by J- Jason Fleming. And there was affection between them. And now he's come in to kind of review his restaurant. And it's just, I'm really pleased they're making a TV show of this because I was just about to say, you know, cook, kitchens and cooking is a new black, isn't it? With the massive success of The Bear, this, you know, this, this I'm sure that's come out of the state. Um, which is also great, so watch that. But yeah, this, it just, Stephen Graham is the heart and soul of this. So don't be scared of the intensity, because I'm not one for, for watching a stressful movie. I think it's just an incredible, uh, it, it, it's just an incredible vision realised of what a night in a restaurant could be like, but with some utter moments of humanity and tenderness. And some moments of humour. There's a lot to this film. And, you know, as Ash said, this is not typically a Yossi watch, but if I've put it in my top ten and I was feeling the pressure to boiling point, it's clearly there's something to celebrate there. So that is, it's on Netflix. That's our number seven film, Boiling Point. Right, we are now halfway through our list of diverse and eclectic films. Would you expect anything more from your favourite Cambridge-based film reviewers? So we're up to number six, and this is Robert Eggers' follow-up to The Lighthouse, The Northman, starring Alexander Skarsgård as a, a Viking prince who is on a quest to avenge his father's murder. Came critically acclaimed, also obviously starring Nicole Kidman, Clive Bang, Ethan Hawke. Vicky, I'm going to come to you first because welcome to the mic. Hello. Hello. You put this in your top 12. What was it you loved about it? Pretty much uh, the whole thing. The violence, the the lore, the, the shots. I think, honestly, um, this was such a visceral experience to watch in itself. It was probably one of my favourite film experiences because I was pretty much gasping at the amount of just heavy, heavy like action I don't want to say violence too many times but it is just like it just you feel it in your bones the amount of scenes where uh, Alexander Skarsgård just lets rip on so many people but it's not just that like it has such a good backstory it has like the you have like Green Knight kind of levels of like legend and it builds a story and I was just very much here for it. Alfie, what were we, as as um as Vicky has said, this is kind of maybe a, a sort of orgy of nihilistic violence a little bit. But what what did you love about it? I loved the visuals. I loved all the acting, the the sound design, um, just yeah, everything, pretty much everything about it. Uh, it's not as good as the lighthouse because I I really love the lighthouse. I disagree with that completely. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yeah, lighthouse is one of my favorite films of all time. This um, looks maybe a little more accessible than The Lighthouse, yeah. I would suggest. It's, it's much more accessible. I feel like going into The Lighthouse, you had to have a lot of backstory. In... Lorcan, do you remember what The Lighthouse is based on? Is it... Oh, it's four different myths that all came together based on a ghost story, I believe. I feel like I needed like background <laughs> knowledge to sit through that. But um, The Northman in general, you do not need that. It's much more accessible, like Emma said. And um, yeah, I, I feel like going into this, you just get what the poster delivers, which is Alexander Skarsgård holding a... A cleaver. <laughs> I want to say a cleaver. I, uh, Henry, I noticed this was written as well by Robert Eggers, but he wrote it alongside the fabulous Monica Chun. Just one name. He's like Cher. He is a famous Icelandic. Or Bjork. Or Bjork. Of course, or Bjork. <laughs> Very good. Well, yeah, much more relevant being Icelandic. Um, how was the script? Um, I mean, it's great. I was in on the show when we reviewed it, and I, I remember doing that show and was kind of still riding the like just electric high of watching the film where I just kind of felt like I could walk into any room and just launch a piece of furniture like with ease. 
And I had worried that over time I might kind of realise that the film was like a bit empty or just like was just really cool action. But actually I watched it a second time and I've, you know, been able to sit with it since March. And it is so densely packed. The script is actually a really interesting take on kind of revenge thrillers that without giving too much away, because I don't think as no- enough people really saw this film. So without giving that away, it's a really good kind of deconstruction of like the revenge thriller and that sort of narrative. And the way that like The Lighthouse, it kind of starts to like playfully peel itself apart as the film reaches its climax, which just made me absolutely giddy with joy. Okay, Lorcan, coming to you last, Vikings, if I may say, are so hot right now with what the new god of war and everything. You mm. know, does this give, is this a worthwhile addition to this canon? Because we, you know, we, we, we do seem to love some Nordic myths right now. So is this a good addition? Oh my God, this film feels like it was made either by a Viking or Robert Eggers made it exclusively for Vikings. It's so, because <laughs> he's like, I know he's incredibly particular about. Uh, the details. He won't put anything in this film that he doesn't think is completely factually accurate. Like in in The Witch, they hand cut all the wood just so it looked hand cut. They didn't have anything pre-prepared. I was really worried whenever the trailer and stuff, the promotional material would come out because the promotional material and the trailers are awful for this. And I was like, oh no, Robert Eggers, he's sold out. He's doing a revenge thriller with these A-listers. I think he even said he found the editing process painful because the studio made him edit it down from what he wanted it to be. But then then it was so wonderful to know that this art house director who's great with actors made effectively the feature length equivalent of the Bidden Predator where Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers just lock arms. <laughs> it's, it's wonderfully cathartic and just hyper violent in a way you just don't see anywhere in an enjoyable way. Well, that is super cool. I think we would all agree that this was maybe underappreciated on its cinematic release. It wasn't seen by that many people, but you can now seek it out incredibly easily. It's ready to stream on Now TV or Sky TV, or you can buy it on any of your favourite platforms. Sounds like it's well worth nine ninety nine. It is our number six. It was The Northman by Robert Eggers. Okay, we are on to number five, and I know a couple of people in the studio are very excited to talk about this one. Um, This is Baz Luhrmann's biopic Elvis, which stars Austin Butler as the titular character, Mr. Presley, in his quest to transform rock and roll in the US. Tremendous, tremendous triumph. The greatest show on earth, my dear boy. This ranch came from you and me, but... You alone rose above it all. You could work with your talent and your dedication. <laughs> we did it. We did it. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Come on. I don't even know who to come to first, but Emma is sitting here giggling away, so it's it's probably going to have to be you, Emma. You, let's let's not lie, you adored this. I did adore it. I am a huge Elvis fan anyway, and have been for quite some time. I adored it to such an extent that when I I sort of lost my mind and started crying at the end, the people next to me thought I was just laughing hysterically. But no, it was pure tears. I had to apologise when, when, when you get the real life footage of Elvis at the end. Could anyone have made this other than Baz Luhrmann? I don't think so. And it is the absolute perfect combination of Luhrmann and Presley that just comes together to give you two and a half hours of rhinestones and passion and beauty. And please, may I say as well, if Catherine, it's Catherine Ryan, I think, isn't it, that he's married to, if she isn't nominated for her, for her costume work on this, then it will be a travesty. If Austin Butler isn't nominated, that and frankly should win for his portrayal as, as Elvis. It is remarkable. They mix 
the voices, they, they, they mix the voice of Elvis in with Austin Butler. It's more Austin Butler at the beginning, but as he got older, obviously, they then mix in more Elvis. But it's just spot on. The casting is amazing. It is told with heart and verve. And I watched this film four times in the space of about a month. I, ju I just can't recommend it highly enough. <laughs> Ashley, when I think Baz Luhrmann, I think visuals, production, glamour. Is this the case here? Yes, and that's why I wanted to see it and I was excited. So he would be my second favourite director, probably because I love the look of Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet. And it's, it's very Moulin Rouge. It is camp as anything and it's just wall to wall, red and gold and glitter. And I loved it. Fantastic. Lorcan... Was it? Was this your number one? It was my number one. It was your number one. Okay, so beyond visuals then, tell us why you loved this film. Um, oh, it's just, it's so, it's such a nice film because I don't, I don't really know, I don't know a whole lot about Elvis. I'm not particularly passionate about Elvis, but just watching the film, it does such a good job of taking you there. It's such a nice spirit. It is like, it's such a nice tone of like, oh, we can go into like historical figures and dig up all this dirt on them. But um, if we do that, then we lose all these people who have genuinely inspired people for generations and we're just left with a bunch of Colonel Tom Parkers and no one wants that. Um, it's a very feel-good film, but it is very tragic. And I've heard a lot of people say it's not Baz Luhrmann enough, contrast to last year when apparently French Dispatch was too Wes Anderson. Um, but I, I, it, the whole film is so fluid one scene bleeds into the five that surround it um i think not only does austin butler i, I think the whale's probably gonna brendan frazier's gonna be some competition at the oscars but i think austin butler deserves best actor and i think um the editor i can't even imagine it's like moulin rouge like, i can't even imagine editing all this footage together. Fast, it's fast, 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 snap snap it's it, really exciting and they do the most of the elvis comeback special is just done brilliantly it is it's a sort of 20 minute scene in the so it's about two thirds of the way through the movie and when it finishes with austin butler singing i have it you know that's it's, the first it's, time it's you like cried. Dream. she cried three times it <laughs> just is one of the most incredible things i've seen on screen yep. ever that, I'm not kidding you. That tone and change ever, was fabulous. Ever, literally ever. And I'm telling you, I then took my my 82-year-old father to go and see it, loved it. And I took my kids to go and see it, loved it. It really does. You don't have to be an Elvis fan. You don't have to know much. I know, like Lorcan said, it is a feel-good film. And from this point of view, it has been very much heralded by the Presley estate, much more so than any other warts and all. It's not warts and all. I mean, there's certainly things that Elvis you know, did and was capable of and, and he was culpable perhaps in his own downfall more than this would show you. But that doesn't matter because also he was, as Lorcan said, he was just one of the greatest inspirations in popular music of the last 50 years and let's hold on to that. And my God, what a way to do it. Right, I'm, I'm going to have to cut it there because we've, we're really into the top five now, but glowing reviews all around from our team. That's our number five film, which is Elvis. Moving swiftly on to our number four, and it's one of my favourites again. I feel like the next three films, it's all, you know, I'm feeling very excited about these. Um, we are moving all the way back to February for Norwegian director Joaquin Trier's The Worst Person in the World, with again a complete breakout performance by Renati Rensch, Rensch, um playing Julie, and the story of Julie over four years, um, just, you know, a 30 year old woman turning 30 in her two relationships. Yeah, it's just anyway, that, that's all I'm going to say for now. I'm going to go to Henry first on this. We've got Henry, Vicky and Yossi. Everybody put it somewhere in their top three. This was an absolute art house and critical success. Did it live up to the hype, Henry? Yeah, completely. And it was one that had been had been riding a wave of hype for a while because it premiered at Cannes back in 2021. And so there'd been this kind of wave of like, hey, you have to see this. It's great. And you do 
get this with films sometimes where the, you're like there is no way it can live up to it but this does and I think you know you've called it like an art house smash but I think this is actually incredibly accessible you know this is like a kind of it's a coming of age story for a woman in her 20s but it's one that kind of everyone can see themselves in um, there's so many aspects of this film that I of, of Judy's life that just have zero correlation with my life and yet I'm watching this whole film and thinking oh right yeah no I'm I am Julie. I am her completely. And I think that's to do with the kind of the world that Walking Trio creates. It's a playful world. There are these kind of moments of like magical realism um, that are kind of there to like help lighten some of the dark sides of Julie's life. And it creates a film that, yeah, like I said, it's completely accessible. I think a lot of people will be put off because they're like, oh, it's like a foreign language Norwegian thing. But as, as Bong Joon-ho famously said, when you can get over the three inch barrier of subtitles, you are going to realise that this is as good, if not better, than anything Hollywood has put out that is remotely similar to this. Vicky, I'm going to ask you, have you seen... You can almost see it as a... Well, there is a companion... As a companion piece, perhaps, it's much more so than for August 31st, Oslo, yeah. August 31st, which also stands Anders Danielson Lee, who plays one of Julie's boyfriends in this and is kind yeah. of whacking Trier's muse, as far as I can tell. Um, have you seen any any other of Trier's films? I haven't yet? watched the trilogy that this is a part of. Um, to my knowledge, this trilogy is like a love letter to Oslo in general. When this got released, Mubi made a point that like to put all his, they put all the films on Mubi and they're like, this is a trilogy. You've just watched the the like best conclusion to it. They've like they've kind of made the city a main character in this film. The backgrounds, um, the places that they visit, but the people as well. Like and like they they've put it on in a big like show stopping light. Like I'd really love to go there now. Um, but I haven't watched the trilogy. I will. I will. I promise. <laughs> Yossi, this was your number two. I think you said you're pretty sure. Yeah, it's definitely top three, it, right? It was, it was in it was in my top three. I think it, it's my third favorite film. Sorry, but it's. I just loved this. I mean, it, I felt very seen watching this. There was so much, like Henry said, that I could connect to. And I I just thought it was wonderful how it managed to capture so realistically the beauties, but also the hardships of life in your 20s. And I, I've, I've got to give a shout out. And Renata Rainsford as Julie what a performance absolutely brilliant and I just I can't I cannot recommend this film enough any last words be careful of the emotional uphaul that you'll have after watching this film <laughs> uh, in general I think out of I mean I'm a big crier but out of all of them this one is the reason why it's so high is on my list is because I really did not feel the same for like quite some time I had to d- definitely digest it but that's the beauty of it and it digest it with the soundtrack because it was fantastic yeah Vicky and I saw it together and we all had to kind of just stand quietly for about half an hour afterwards <laughs> in, a, in a small room <laughs> the best use of Harry Nielsen since Midnight Cowboy which is also a very tragic ending so there you go it's worst person in the world we all loved it it got to our number four seek it out it's a Civic of 15 and yeah like I say it's number four Would you believe it? We are now at our top three films of 2022. And in at number three, it is The Banshees of Inishirin by Martin McDonough. A lot of our team put this in their in their top films of the year list and quite highly too. This is a film starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as lifelong friends Padraig and Combe who find themselves troubled when, the, when Combe abruptly puts their friendship to an end. 
Um, Lorcan, I'm going to come to you first because th- th- this was quite highly ranked in your list. Yes, no, my second one after uh, the wonderful. Well, ones. well, there you go. Tell us a little bit more about why, why you love this film. Um, it's uh, straight up from the top. It's um, it's very allegorical, so you can read into it uh, any number of ways. Uh, I think there's some very very strong contemporary messaging in the film, or you can just sit back and watch a film about uh, a friendship breakdown between two people. It's so immediately engaging, relatable. Um, and I, I peg um, Barry Keown for um, a, a supporting actor nomination because he is incredible. He has one scene in particular that's just heartbreaking. I, I don't know. Everything I've watched him in, I just think he's so impressive. But it's about the only saving grace in the Eternals, correct? Am mm-hmm. I right? Yeah, right. I, th- I think you are right. But just quickly, if we go to Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who I've, I think they're dynamite on screen together from the films I've seen. Ashley, how do you think they work portraying this friendship in this film? I think Colin Farrell is an adorable character in this, so sweet. And even though um, his best friend is kind of problematic mental health-wise as well and the way he treats Colin Farrell, those two are gorgeous together. And as Lorcan was explaining, it's on the surface level a story about their lovely friendship and then you've got the futility of war, male loneliness. It's They pack so many different levels of storytelling in. And I agree, yeah, Barry Keegan, is that how we say Keon. it? Keon, he's our finest actor. Super. Simon, this, this was on your list as well. This is a black comedy and it is dark at times, but also absolutely hilarious at times. Tell us about how you enjoyed it. I mean, you just pretty much summed it up there, being a very, very black comedy. Um, it's sold as being a comedy and... There were parts where I was literally falling off my chair. It was some of the funniest things I've ever seen, some of the lines. Um, yeah, it's really got a dark heart to it as well. Um, it is very sad. It's relatable. You know, it, it's relatable. It's sad. It really does make you think. I mean, everything Ashley and um, Lorcan be saying about the cast is correct. You know, they're all fantastic. It's, you know... Following on from In Bruges as the indirect, not a sequel, um, but McDonough, Gleason, and Farrell together again. I just want them to make so many more movies together because it's just, you know, it's a diamond. And Emma, this this was in your top ten as well. And we're just talking about the the magic trio there, and it's quite exciting to see some films from from them, isn't it? And Martin McDonough in particular. I completely agree, and I'm so with Ashley as well. This this raised Colin Farrell for me. I, I mean, they're all they, they are all yeah, Barry Keir as well, and um and Com and, and Brendan Gleeson, but. Yeah, this, he was a heart for me in this film, um, Colin Farrell. I wasn't expecting that. And it's also just gloriously shot with the muted palette. And then, like I say, there's one there's one shot where the... And, and the women as well, let's not forget yeah, the women. The actress the women. played his sister, Siobhan, is, I'm yeah. glad to have discovered her. In and this. you have that marvellous shot where she's walking, where she's leaving in the yellow coat when she sort of says, that's just what we need, more silent men on this side. It, it's just, like you said, it's dense, there are layers to unpack, and it's just a marvellous piece of art from McDonough. Super. That is our number three film, The Banshees of Inishirin. We are on number two. I frankly can't believe this isn't our number one, but it's fine. Number two, it was thinking of my number one. And we are going into the danger zone and we are returning to Top Gun Naval Academy for Top Gun Maverick. His exploits are legendary and he's considered to be one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. I give you Captain Pete Mitchell. Call sign, Maverick. 
the film, if you like, that saved cinema this year, I believe so, because to be absolutely fair, yeah, after decimating, after COVID kind of decimated our cinema going for two years, there was a lot riding on the much-delayed Top Gun Maverick, and I, for one, would say it lived up to all those expectations. Mark? For me, it is the most perfect distillation of the blockbuster formula that I can remember. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't try to do anything necessarily revolutionary or anything uh, earth-shattering other than putting people in real planes and flying them around at stupid speeds, which is fantastic. But actually, f- for giving you all the hits and the beats that you want from a blockbuster film, you really couldn't expect better than this. Tom Cruise is, is Tom Cruise on top form, as he always is. Uh, but I just had the best time with this film. Uh, saw it in IMAX, and you know I, I had the real genuine adrenaline rush I think I would have felt of being up in a, a plane myself. It's just blockbuster perfection. I mean, I won't lie, like, as, as I think I've said on this film, this film too many times, I, the, 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 the original Top Gun was the very first 15 I ever saw at the cinema, so my levels of excitement was... So I was quivering when I went to go and see it at the IMAX and I went to go and see the preview one that was you know the, the, live from the London premiere. Luke, as Mark said, this is obviously... Top Tom Cruise's film, of course it is. Tom Cruise does everything. He writes, you know, from from flying the planes to teaching all the people around him. But there is a really strong supporting cast from Miles Teller, Glenn Powell, John Hamm, Val Kilmer popping back, Jennifer Connelly. How did they work for you? I think the supporting cast really does a good job of holding Tom Cruise in check. The unforgettable Glenn Powell, as he will be known. I think this is a star-making performance from him. He, you know, he's the young Tom Cruise in this film. And it's such a you know, it's a cliche role he does. He's the, you know, the cocky airline guy, but he gets his own little subplot that holds it all together. And you have Miles Teller, who sort of does, you know, that sort of a facsimile of what you have, have in the first film with the sort of the, the bad guy. Um, but everyone gets a nice little resolution at the end. It's not just Tom Cruise's film. And you get that in the final act where everyone gets their little chance to do something, which you don't get often in Tom Cruise films that he but- shares the limelight. Very true. Vicky, this is both a love letter, I think, to the first one, but also the first one and then some. It's almost like it almost comes combined with Mission Impossible, I think, towards the end. Were you a fan of the original Top Gun? Um, And I think I texted you as soon as I came out of watching it for the first time because I knew all your reviews. I wasn't the biggest fan, but did I cry? (laughs) Did I cry? I was so emotionally attached to the characters that I met in the first film that when we came back to this, I was literally, as soon as I saw Mel's Teller, I was like... There he is. There's my boy from the first one. And um, it was Goose or was it Moose? Please don't. It's Goose, isn't it? <laughs> Brewster in the second one, Goose's son. Goose yes. is Anthony Edwards in the first yeah. one. Yeah. I had such a, like emotional attachment to that character because in the first one, he keeps Tom Cruise in check. And then I, I didn't love the whole thing in general, but I loved the happy conclusion. But this does that times 10. I've watched this film five times this year just because I wanted to feel the kind of same great emotions with that One Republic soundtrack just a few more times. Um, But yeah, I think this is way better than the first one. I'm very sorry for saying that because I know how much of a fan you are. But at the same time, this is the Top Gun that I will rewatch for generations and rave about. It's perfectly allowed because you couldn't have this without the first one. (laughs) Alfie, coming to you quickly for the end, you put this in your top five. What was it that stood out for you? It was definitely the third act. Uh, the first two acts are really good at setting everything up, but the third act is when all, like, you know, everything happens, everything that needs, you know, all the characters do something, as you said before. Like Tom Cruise and Miles Teller are great together, they have great chemistry on camera, and the action scenes are very exciting. 
You're right. It is something. I mean, like like Mark said, it really does. You, you're almost reverberating in your seat. It's coming back for a release in cinema. So I beg you, if you haven't seen it, go, on, go and see it on the biggest screen you, you can do. Or even if you have seen it, go and see it again on the biggest screen you can do. That is our number two Top Gun Maverick. Okay. We, we've finally got to the number one spot on the Cambridge Film Show Top 12 of the year. And our number one is, drumroll please... Everything, Everywhere, All at Once by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner. Now, I'm really pleased. This is my number one film of the year, so I'm actually quite joyful sitting here. And one of my favourite experiences at the cinema this year was sitting next to Stuart Pask watching this and him giggling with delight (laughs) several times. Stuart, this was on your top ten list. Tell us why. So, of the two multiversal movies that arrived on our screens this year the other one being Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Manus we would be chatting about this outside in, 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 in the green room we'll call it to sound fancy um, but they came out within about a week two weeks of each other um, so I saw Doctor Strange first and then we went and saw this now I perhaps hadn't got this on my radar but we all went to go see this as a group screening together and I was not disappointed it was absolutely fantastic uh, i think it was on about half the budget of the of the of the marvel take on the multiverse and there were some excellent performances from michelle Yeoh and her and the supporting cast uh, and it was really just off the wall bonkers fun and it, it takes a little while to get your head around what's going on but it's it's a very funny execution of, of the multiverse and it was it was just a feast for the senses. I think that's a really great way to put it. It's very much a feast for the senses. Um, Vicky, coming to you, I mean, I think Stuart used this word and I'm going to use it. Quite simply, it's a little bit bonkers, isn't it? But it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's um, bonkers. It's out there. The costuming, the, the fast-paced editing that makes you a little bit dizzy at times. But I had a great time watching this. And I think, obviously, you could, it's a great multiverse film in general. But the tender moments throughout this is what really is why it's so high on everyone's list. Because everyone has a moment where they felt it, it connected with them. And if... It, Given like there was a the Wong Kar Wai scene in Hong Kong and the I would rather do laundry with you or it was so gentle and the, I won't say too much on the mother daughter relationship because it's it's honestly it's the reason why I'm here sat right here right now because there was things that was said that probably I haven't said to my own mother and definitely of. If you come from an Asian household, there was a lot. It's a lot there, and I just remember streaming. Like I've said, I've cried quite a few times in this thing, <laughs> but I was really having a hard time. So much. I rang my mum at three a.m. after watching this, and there's not much more to say than this is like the kind of heartfeltness you get out of it. And Michelle Yeoh and Stephanie, she literally they were the best chemistry wise that you needed for this to like stir and come together apart from you know the cooking raccoons and the madness and the sausage fingers this is what I was this is why it's so high on my list but but that's the thing isn't it Simon that this this can make you laugh and make you cry Vicky I cried (laughs) watching this very much so so it's got a lot of heart I mean the heart it's the heart that makes you come back to this film and what makes it so special I mean the special effects are amazing it's so inventive such a well, such a low-budget, small-effects team, you don't need the $250 million from Marvel to make something as impressive as this. Um, and one thing we haven't mentioned so far was the return
return of Kihu Kwan as mm-hmm. Raymond, and it was so wonderful to see him back. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this film, I'm not going to go into spoilers, but definitely has the best scene of the year uh, featured in it, um, which is just an absolute mind-blowing sequence. Everything about this film is top-notch. It's fantastic. It's, you know, it's deep. It's exciting. The the effects and choreography on the fight scenes are, like, top-notch. It's just, like, everything is is perfect with it. Um, and we're, we're, we're almost out of time. Mark, thinking about another immersive experience here with this film, how did you find it? I, I mean, for me, this was just the most thrilling experience of the year in the sense that I never knew what was coming. And all those occasions in which you think they wouldn't do that, surely. Actually, they did. And then sometimes they went a bit further than that. But to have this incredibly innovative film, this incredibly risk-taking film, this incredibly grounded and emotional film, bringing all these things so successfully, it was just an absolute wonder. It's a film I'll be revisiting many times, I'm sure. It'll be a real favourite, and uh, I can't wait to watch it again. We've already mentioned her, but Luke, I just want to quickly touch on Michelle Yeoh as the central character here and just the energy that she brings to this film. It's such a marvellous performance from her. I feel like she's been a bit shortchanged in films of late, where she's playing supporting roles, but she gets a chance here to do something so difficult in this, to carry this film, particularly where you see different multiverse versions of her. And it's such a difficult thing to pull off where you're essentially performing five or six different roles at once. There's not much more that I can add that other people haven't already said, but it's a film that's just so stunningly audacious. And it's not completely flawless, but you can forgive the sheer scale of the ambition for what it pulls off. And Henry, I've just seen this as your number two film of the year, so final word from you, please. I think everything you need to know about this film is that the end credit song is from David Byrne and Mitski. If you know those artists, you know that an inventiveness um, and a, a proper heartfelt adoration that comes through from those artists. And the fact that Daniels chose them to be what closes out the film and what kind of is sticking with you as you put the tissues away and stumble out of the cinema. That, for me, says everything about the film. Everything, indeed. That is our number one film of 2022. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Okay, thank you very, very much for listening. That was our top 12 of 2022. Uh, It's been a delight running through these these films with everyone. Thank you so, so much, team, and to the lovely Emma, my co-host. We are going to be back on January the 7th, where it's out with the old and in with the new, as we start talking about some 2023 films, hopefully. Wonder what will make the list for next year. Thank you very much, everyone, and a Merry Christmas.